Welcome to the latest edition of The Audible. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by Stuart Mandel. And we actually held taping this part till Monday afternoon, late Monday afternoon, to fill in the blanks from the Big 12 non-expansion and their press conference. This is not surprising, Stu. I know you wrote a column about it. This is pretty much what we expected, which with the Big 12 is kind of a curveball in itself, correct? Well, I, you never know what to expect with the Big 12. And when you and I discussed early this morning that we should push this back, uh, this part of the podcast, back till after the press conference, nothing had been reported yet. For all we knew, they were going to come out and say they wanted to add eight teams. You know, you can never know with these guys until it actually happens. End of day, yes. All indications in the last few weeks, I would say, was that this is where it was headed. But that being said... I just cannot believe that they put all these schools through this three-month audition process of sending materials and doing video conferences and flying to Dallas and all this, uh, you know, great lengths of lobbying the Big 12, whether you're BYU, Cincinnati, Houston, Connecticut, or whoever. And then at the press conference today, Monday, David Bourne says they didn't even discuss individual schools. The that they they got together, they sang Kumbaya, they decided that they were, uh, they've never been more united than they have now, and they're going to stay at 10. And because of that, eh, they never even bothered to talk about the schools, but thank them for applying. Yeah, I thought one of the things which was kind of revealing was it came back to a Big 12 network and how critical that piece was, which to me seems like it's pretty, it's pretty foggy that they could have done that dance so much, given... I mean, if I had asked you six months ago, before we were in in Arizona in uh, early May, did you think a Big 12 network was feasible given all the tentacles and all the kind of uh, arms, you know, all the little deals and the, and the Longhorn Network deal itself that the that are kind of entangled in the Big 12 partners? It's funny. We've been through so many ebbs and flows over the last six months because remember when we went to Phoenix – we, I mean, I remember going there thinking this will be more interesting than usual because they might start talking expansion. And then we came out of there thinking, nah, sounds like they're probably not going to expand. And then they turned around in – actually, I might be even getting no, – You have it backwards. They came out of there. Bowlesby made it sound like they had done the research and it was happening. And then like three weeks later, they did their – I don't even know like the which reverse – you know, they – They've literally gone in so many circles. You're right. I can't even keep track of all these stops and starts. What I remember mostly is at their meeting in early June when they announced the championship game, that they're bringing back a championship game. Bourne, who had been you know, leading the charge for expansion for the last year or more, that was the pivotal moment when you could tell he had gone lukewarm on it. And he said specifically, we talked about a conference network, but we found out from our partners and our consultants, there's no market for it. So we're not pursuing that anymore. And from that point forward, you never heard him be all gung-ho about expansion anymore, which is why, like you said, when you know somebody asked him flat out at this press conference, you're the one who said they're psychologically disadvantaged. You know, what happened? Do you want to walk that back? And he said, well, that was more about us not having a conference network. But, you know, your views change as circumstances change. And once we found out we couldn't have a conference network, my views changed. Well, you said that on June 3rd, and it wasn't until mid-July that they held that press conference and shocked us all by saying that they had authorized Bob Bowlesby to start speaking to expansion candidates. So if you were really so sure in early June that a conference network wasn't going to happen, why did we go through all this? 
I don't know. I mean, I just look back as I just trying to refresh my memory. I remember being there in Arizona and this is Bob Bowlesby's quote to us. If we do nothing, we will be substantially behind other power five leagues a decade from now. Yeah. And and that was when you started to think he's really going to push them to do this. And I can tell you this from talking to people involved, the consultants that they were using, and there were two of them, definitely recommended to them to expand. There was no question about that. They thought, I mean, that, that was the, the empirical version of psychologically disadvantaged. But again, were there two schools out there that they could all, that eight of the 10 of them could agree on? I guess we never did find out. Um, what do you think? Where does this leave the Big 12 now? Did they make a mistake not expanding? I don't know if they had much wiggle room, to be honest. I mean, they're in a vulnerable position. You know, this feels a little bit like the Pac-12 with the Pac-12 network. You're not the SEC. You do not have the same level of rabid fan bases. You know, you don't have it the same even as the Big Ten. So your reality is your reality. And there's only so much you can do with it. You don't want to make bad decisions at the expense of it. You know, so... I don't know what else they really can do. I mean, where are we looking at this, you know, let's say a decade from now when the contracts are up? Does that mean Texas is going to go to the Big Ten potentially? Where do you think Texas is 10 years from now? Not in the Big 12. It's hard to say exactly where what will happen because you just don't know what the greater landscape will look like. Um, all of the conferences, contracts run out around the same time, except for actually the ACC pushed theirs pretty far into the future when they decided that they were going to start a conference network, which by the way, I still don't understand how that's going to work. And the college football playoff contract will expire around then. So I've always said, you know, there could be radically different changes. It won't just be this conference is adding a school or two and this conference, whatever. I mean, you could see radical changes to the landscape. Uh, but despite David Boren's insistence that the conference has never been more united it never had more cohesion in all of his time there than he heard today yeah i would be very surprised if the texas and oklahoma are still part of something called the big 12 uh 10 years from now i would think uh oklahoma would go to the sec and texas would go to the well it depends if they still have the longhorn network by then you think they'd be more likely to go to the big 10 or the pac-12 i'd say the big 10 i mean even though the pac-12 thing you know almost happened before I just think the timing wasn't right with the Big Ten. Do you think any factor of, of, this is maybe too far down the rabbit hole, but other people who are not in the same time zone would look at the at the uh, Pac-12 and go, I don't want to play a lot of night games for our fans, because that's what we may end up getting roped into, into some kind of deal like that. I think that what the Pac-12 is, who knows what they'll be selling eight years from now. If this were happening today, I think what the Pac-12 would be selling today would not be nearly as attractive as what Larry Scott made it out to be then when the conference network was still, you know, something, uh, you know, a vision, uh, something to be very optimistic about, not the mess that it ended up becoming. And if that had gone down, if the PAC 16 had happened, I would assume they would have a lot of great television windows right now. They'd be playing a lot of games at very ideal times. Obviously that hasn't come to fruition. So basically what Larry Scott was selling at the time hasn't come to fruition for the most part. So I don't know that that marriage could happen at this point. But again, that's all a long ways off. You know, my own views on expansion changed with the Big 12. For the longest time, I said, why do they need to expand? They've got arguably the best system of any of the conferences for determining a champion. They all play each other. And they said that. They talked about 
this was at one point, I think Bowlesby made the comment, this was really a defense of our model. Right. Because we like playing a full round robin. Well, they, if they were so, if they believed so strongly in that model, then how did we get to this? You know, this started almost two years ago with them going, oh no, we got left out of the playoff. What are we going to do? Now they did add a championship game, so they didn't stand completely pat. They are going to have that 13th game, which they became convinced was very important. And I agree. I, I thought that was a very uh, smart move, even though some people would say, what's the point? They're already all playing each other. Why do you have to have a rematch? You know, I just think the way the committee system is evolving, they were at a disadvantage, not about having a 13th game, but about not being guaranteed to play a big game that last week of the season. You know, I just was seeing how earlier today I noticed that Baylor and West Virginia are playing um, that first Saturday in December. They're two of the three first place teams right now, maybe that ends up being a de facto big 12 championship game, but some years it's going to be a complete dud. And so now you're guaranteed to have a showcase game for your potential playoff team or teams that last week of the season. So I do think it was important to add a championship game, but you know, there are greater issues going on with the big 12 and we've discussed them. The talent is not what it used to be. The recruiting is not what it used to be. Um, I think that they're losing ground in the state of Texas to the SEC. I think that you pin that on coaching more than anything. It's not like their facilities have, have eroded to nothingness or whatever. It's, you know, Bob Stoops has been there almost 20 years now. Charlie Strong has been on the hot seat almost from the time he's taken that job. Do you think it's just a matter of when those two flagship schools both get it going again, you know, there'll be nothing to criticize the Big 12 for? No, I mean, there's always issues you can kind of pick at, but I think those are the two, as you said, flagship schools. And if they are at the elite level and going, you know, at full speed, then I think the recruiting is, is I'm not saying it's a non-issue, but a non-starter, but I think it's a different dynamic then. It's hard. I mean, Charlie Strong recruited, you know, as you know, we talked about ad nauseum, closed very well last year. And that's when obviously he had a massive staff changes and he is clearly on the hot seat. So, I mean, I hate to say it, but you measure the Big 12 by Texas and Oklahoma as much as anything else. You don't measure the Big 12 by K-State and Iowa, just like you don't measure the Big 10 by by uh, by per- Purdue and Minnesota. You measure the Big 10 by Michigan and Ohio State. Why, does, why do people feel so good about the Big 10 right now? Because Jim Harbaugh and Urban Meyer are there. And why, did, why are people so down on the Big 10 for much of the last – eight years because Michigan was about at about its worst state as a program as it's been in a long time. So, you know, and state sunk and, and so, yeah, it's true. You know, people don't like to hear that necessarily, but you know, each conference has their flagship brands and, and people kind of, their, their perception of the conference often depends on how those programs are doing. By no means do I think the big 12 had to expand, you know, this is not a, there's no, this is not a survival thing like it was a few years ago when, you know, they really did all that league almost did implode the, everybody's locked into a grant of rights for the next eight years. So it wasn't necessary, but I, I, I just find it hard to, I don't necessarily buy the notion that whoever they brought in was just going to devalue the conference. You mean to tell me, and I know that, you know, you can't judge a program off one or two years and Tom Herman will, could leave tomorrow, but you really think you give Houston Big 12 membership and they're going to be what Rutgers is in the Big 10 right now? No. I think they would. They could strengthen the league. I think BYU could strengthen the league. Um, I think there were any number of programs that were being mentioned that 
given the increase in revenue and exposure, it could have become a regular uh, top 25 program. But, you know, nothing happens in a vacuum or in a bubble. And we should note that our employer and ESPN clearly, uh, based on media reports, did not want them to expand, did believe that those schools would devalue the uh, conference. They mostly danced around that issue at the press conference today. But, you know, that obviously had to have played a big role. You you go out and you hear that from your television partners. That's going to that, – that might be a big reason why they were suddenly so cohesive and united about 10 teams. Yeah, and I'll be honest. As somebody who's worked at both TV places, and you know I've talked about this offline, but since we're going down there, I mean it's, a, um, it's an awkward place to be to report on this part of college football. And I felt that way when I was at ESPN with conference realignment and a lot of other issues related to ESPN's real – core business. I feel like that, you know, to some degree as well, when it comes to, to this with the, with the big 12, I mean, we still have to, to weigh in on it, but at the same time, I think it's a little bit of a different dynamic. Yeah. It's definitely different writing about and talking about uh, this story as an employee of Fox sports than it would have been at sports illustrated, not because anybody, you know, to be clear, nobody has told me what I should or shouldn't say or write about big 12 expansion. We, Definitely enjoy the same amount of editorial independence that the people at SI would or any other, you know, outlet. It's not that at all. But, you know, I just used the phrase earlier, television partners, and I find myself using it a lot to avoid saying Fox Sports. So just something as simple as that. Um, you know, the president of Fox Sports, Eric Shanks, was quoted this morning, Monday morning, was quoted in Sports Business Journal about what a mistake, you know, Big 12 expansion would be ultimately Although many, many levels up, he is our boss. So uh, you're right. I, I think a podcast is a good way to just kind of get that out in the oak. Get the, address the elephant in the room head on. Okay, I got a question for yeah. you. This is a very simplistic way of, of presenting this. Who are the biggest winners and who are the biggest losers in this? I want to hear your answer because I definitely have an answer. All right, well, if you definitely have an answer, please give it while I think about mine. The biggest losers, I feel like, are the other conferences who had to – basically show their hand and look desperate to make this move and got dragged through the process and dragged in. So you mean all of the candidates? Pretty much. I mean, look, while this press conference was going on, I kept on getting one email after another from South Florida and BYU and Colorado State. Yeah, who had comments about this. And they each felt very similar. And that's just a that's not a good place to be. The only winners I can feel like in this are, and they're not big winners, but it's basically the media because it gave you guys something to talk about and drive traffic. People clicked on your podcast, too. They clicked on your, you know, Pete Thamel's columns and John Solomon and Dennis Dodd's columns and probably gave Jake Trotter a lot more followers from, from, from other parts of the country. And I think that's, you know, it became a, it became a media story that was – seemed like it was always whenever you wanted to kind of draw interest, that was the thing. I mean, that's not a story we, you know, we're planting. That's just kind of the way it presented itself. Yeah, no question. Realignment is good for business. And there's a part of me that's a little disappointed that he, although he did say never say never, but for the, for the foreseeable future, this is, this is no longer a story, but I would say that there's even some layers within that, you know, I mean, there were 11 finalists, but some of them, I don't think realistically, thought they had any chance. I think BYU had a lot riding on this. They are 
stuck in no man's land right now. They really wanted to join a Power Five conference. They don't want to have to go kind of ask the Mountain West if they can come back or, I don't know, join the American, some other non-Power Five league. Houston has invested, you know, considerable amounts of money, was ready to pay Tom Herman a big amount of money if they became a Power Five school. Uh, Cincinnati, similar position. I think those schools, they just saw that window close for the foreseeable future. I think they are bigger losers maybe than a Tulane or an SMU or whatnot. Are there any winners? Maybe ESPN and Fox are because they're going to not have to pay that pro rata clause. You know, whatever they're going to renegotiate will probably be less than that. Those consultants probably made some good money for all those billable hours. I don't think anybody in the Big 12 was a big winner out of this. Well, the consultants probably were making their money whether they did it or didn't do That's it. That's what I'm saying. They, they, they're winners in this. Yeah, so it was those three people, that dude and those two women who you talked to. <laughs> there were two different, believe it or not, consulting groups. One, Navigate Research is the one that did the numbers you saw um, when we were in Phoenix about percentage chances increase of making the playoff, but there was also was a, never clear to begin with. Right, there was also a um, another group that was consulting on the TV market side of it. So I'm sure they all get paid. Other than that, yeah, I mean, you right, you're right. This podcast was a winner. Some of our most downloaded episodes involve Big Twelve realignment. Not a big winner, a little winner. It was like the time when I was at the Hartford Whaler game, and I got an envelope that fell out of a little mini blimp, and it told me I had. 30% off a three-credit course at Briarwood Community College. Right. That's how big of a winner we were on this thing. Well, you know, Big 12 realignment, we'll miss you. You know, we'll miss talking about David Bourne all the time. We'll miss talking about market size. And actually, it's not true. I, I know the timing of this being right in the middle of the season, I am kind of ready to turn the page. What do you say we go back to last weekend's action and talk about some football? We'll get back to the podcast in a second, but first, I want to tell you about Identity Guard. Bruce, I got a question for you. Have you ever lost or thought you lost your phone? Uh, I thought I lost it, and that's a terrible feeling. The only thing worse to me is thinking you've lost your wallet. Yeah, well, you know what makes it worse? Identity thieves know that, too. And when your lost phone winds up in the hands of an identity thief, it can be the beginning of a disaster. Financially, emotionally, even physically that could take years to unwind. That's why you can help protect yourself with Identity Guard. With Identity Guard, you get protection from a company that's been in business for over 20 years, one that's helped protect more than 47 million people. Identity Guard continuously monitors millions of transactions and articles and sends you the news, tools, and guidance you need to minimize your risk. Plus, if you were to become a victim of identity theft, Identity Guard's victim recovery specialist will be there to help you through the recovery process. Identity Guard even offers identity theft insurance with coverage of up to $1 million. To get the identity theft protection service that's right for you, visit Identity Guard at identityguard.com slash podcast. That's identityguard.com slash podcast. It's interesting. We did have a couple dramatic finishes involving the number two and three teams in the country. And yet, as a whole, it felt like a pretty anticlimactic day. But uh, did you feel like watching Ohio State, Wisconsin, that the Buckeyes were in real danger? Because I kind of felt like, even when they were down 10 points, whatever it was, that they would eventually pull it off. I felt like they were in danger when JT Barrett threw the pick in the red zone. You know, I thought that at that point, it was like, whoa, you get all the way down there. They, they actually had really struggled for much of the, certainly for the first half with 
Washington or Wisconsin's offense. I mean, they had over 300 yards. I thought Chris did a really good job of keeping them off balance. And, you know, they're a tough team. And it just didn't feel like the Buckeyes were clicking. The one area where I felt pretty strong on them was I thought their pass rush was overwhelming uh, whenever whenever it was a third and long situation. But short of that, I felt like, you know what, maybe this is Wisconsin's night. They had just played really, really well. Yeah, I mean, I think we found out that Ohio State's offense is mortal. Didn't we know that before, though? It wasn't like that it had been this juggernaut. Yeah, they have some some speed and a good offensive line, but they didn't look great the week before against Indiana. It's not like Indiana, yeah, they're better on defense than they have been. It's not like Indiana has a ton of ton of NFL players on that defense. Well, what I think you were seeing the other night, and first of all, before I even talk about Ohio State's maybe offensive issues, we got to give credit to Wisconsin. We've been underestimating them all season. It's a heck of a defense. And like you said, Paul Chris came out with a great offensive game plan. Ohio State did a nice job adjusting to all those jet sweeps uh, that I think caught them off guard. But um, if you were to talk about Ohio State's offense coming into the season, one of the biggest concerns was the inexperience at receiver. And I think you're seeing that now. Um, maybe JT Barrett's not throwing the passes perfectly, but... Yeah, everybody got all excited about Noah Brown after the Oklahoma game, and I feel like we never heard from him again until he caught the touchdown in overtime the other night. Um, not sure most people could name Ohio State's other receivers. So, you know, they got a good running game, and JT Barrett himself as a runner is somebody, you know, that, that was basically their offense for a while there the other night. But, um, yeah, there's some question marks there. I just don't know if it is going to hurt them before possibly the Michigan game. This is what we saw the other night was the other team, Wisconsin, a top 10 team bringing its a game at home at night still wasn't enough. You think Penn state has any shot this week? No, I don't, I don't think they have much shot. Now last year, Saquon Barkley ran all over them. I think Penn state's offense is actually better this year than it was last year. Cause the young receivers have stepped up. I think Joe Moorhead's done a pretty good job. I'm not saying, you know, Trace, Trace Moore, McSorley is going to light them up or anything. The problem for them is I just think they're st- pretty undermanned on defense. I just don't think they have enough speed to really contain Ohio State. But uh, I could see their offense doing a little bit of damage because they do have firepower. But I just, again, I just don't think they have as good a personnel or are as good on defense as Wisconsin is. Yeah, this was the game I pinpointed before the season as their trap game. Turned out it was Wisconsin. Um, I think they rebound nicely here, but it is a big moment for James Franklin for all the skepticism that continues to hover around him. Imagine if you were to beat the number two team in the country. Yeah, that's a big ask. I mean, right now, I just don't think Penn state has enough, like I said, on defense and they're, and they're pretty banged up at linebacker, you know, could they make it interesting for the first half? Yeah. But I just don't think for four quarters, they'll be able to to deal with Ohio State speed. Well, it would be tough for him if they get blown out, you know, if they get completely outclassed. But remember, two years ago, this was... Uh, this went into was, overtime. Yeah, went overtime. That was a better Penn State defense, though. They were much better up front. They had better athletes in the front seven. You know, that game, uh, Bob Shoup, who's now at Tennessee, had held them. They didn't have a play longer than 20 yards, I think, and then one play... It was in overtime. JT Barrett broke a run. It was kind of one of those where, and I talked to Shoop about it quite a bit after, where it was just like they had what they thought was the right call, and then they ended up changing it because they thought Ohio State was changing it and ended up coming back to bite them. But, yeah, that was a close game. But, I, again, I feel like 
they're just not as good on defense as Penn State was back then. Alabama, on the other hand, put on another dominant performance against Tennessee. And, you know, the theme a week ago in my column, my Monday column, was who should really be number one, Alabama or Ohio State? Well, that question, I think, just went out the window. This Alabama team, to me, is, you know, anything could happen. They could turn around and lose to A&M this week. You know, they're not untouchable. But what they are is they're entertaining. You think about some of Saban's dominant teams from a few years ago, and everybody complained how boring they were, right? The one that was 9-6 to six against LSU, they just kind of bludgeoned you to death. Jalen Hurts has made that offense so much more exciting to watch. And the fact that their defense, I believe the stat is that seven different defensive players have scored touchdowns. I think it's eight. Eight. At any given moment, they can return an interception or a fumble on you. It's entertaining. It's also how these games just balloon out of control. Yeah, I'm not going to walk down the road too far with you on the, well, they're more entertaining now or whatever. I thought they were they were entertaining because they were so good at what they did before. So You're telling me that you see no difference between... I'm not saying I don't see any difference, but I mean... You know, they played a lot of games that were lower scoring that I thought were, were entertaining, too. I never, like, go, oh, this is boring football, so I just, I'm not watching. Well, you're watching because they were the best team in the country, or one of the best teams in the country. Basically, what happened is this. Three years ago or so, Nick Saban had that famous quote about the hurry-up offenses. Is this really what we want football to become? Well, Stu, the other night, you know, when Wisconsin played, is it is it really boring football to you, honestly? Not the way they played the other night. Sometimes Wisconsin football is really boring. But not as boring as like Minnesota Iowa football. I just think it's fascinating how the offense has evolved under Lane Kiffin and Nick Saban. And three years ago, like I said, does this what is this what we want football to become? And the public basically resoundingly said, "Yes, yes, it is." And because uh, they tried to get that rule change passed and couldn't get it passed, and so Saban said, "All right, well, be careful what you wish for. We'll just run that same offense with better players than you." And it's scary. Uh, they ran for. More than 400 yards the other night on Tennessee. Say what you want about Tennessee. A lot of people thought they were overrated to begin with. They're not that overrated. They've got a lot of great players on defense. Granted, they also have a lot of injuries. Alabama ran for over 400 yards on them. It's a scary, scary thing. Now they turn around and face A&M. And the rankings say this is number one versus number six. That means it should be a really highly anticipated who's going to win kind of situation. Alabama is a 17-point favorite against the supposed number six team in the country. I would imagine Alabama would be, well, I'm curious what they're going to be. And a lot of this changes, I guess, uh, depending on what happens between now and early November, you know, whether LSU keeps winning. But I would imagine they're going to be more than a two-touchdown favorite over anybody else in the SEC, in part because of how impressive they've been. But also, I think that Right now, it feels like the Alabama's pulled away from the SEC and everybody else has taken a back step. Maybe Texas A&M hasn't taken the back step that other people have. Maybe they've moved up a little bit. But I feel like that's that's what's at play here, too. Two years ago, the first playoff rankings came out, and there were three SEC West teams in the top four, and none of them were Alabama. That made for quite the entertaining backstretch of that season. This, to me, feels like if Alabama beats A&M, you can just go ahead and put them in Atlanta. And whether they, even if they lose a game after that, it doesn't really matter. I feel like this is setting up as like when people start saying, is so-and-so the, one of the greatest teams of all time and then they don't even win the title? 
No, I'm not saying that they won't lose a game. But you're basically just giving them the SEC SEC title right now. I'm giving them the SEC West title if they beat A&M because I don't see LSU. Even if LSU beats them, LSU can't lose another game. If Auburn were to beat them, Auburn can't lose another game. So Alabama can afford the loss. They can afford one loss, and I don't think it changes anything. That's an interesting thing about the playoff. Well, let me ask you this now while you're on this roll. If Alabama goes 12-1 and and wins the SEC, but let's say they lose either lose to LSU, hypothetically, and Clemson wins out, Michigan wins out, Washington wins out. You're struggling. Yeah, Alabama's still going in over Ohio State, right? There's no scenario where a 12-1 and SEC champion Alabama is going to miss the playoff. And so that's what I'm saying. What about a 12-1 and Texas A&M? Nope, not missing the playoff. So if, as long as you have one loss in the SEC champ, you're going. Unless you play just a you know ridiculously easy non-conference schedule and come from the that's SEC. Not, no, no, I bet that's nobody this year. Because, I mean... Yeah, they all played good schedules. They all played at least one decent team out of conference. You know, I think if you were an SEC East team that didn't play good crossover games, you know, Tennessee played Alabama crossover. But you look at Tennessee's schedule the rest of the way, it's a joke. It's South Carolina, Tennessee Tech, Kentucky, Missouri, Vanderbilt. Tennessee already has two losses, though. I'm just using them as a random example. SEC East champ is uh, 12, wins the SEC East, wins the SEC, finishes 12-1, and one, and doesn't have a Virginia Tech out of conference, and played Mississippi State as a crossover instead of Alabama. Then I think you could question their credentials, but I don't think anybody's going to question. You know, USC is coming on now, so that 52-6 win looks even better. What I'm trying to say is it's an interesting little quirk in the playoff where a lot of these teams just have mulligans. So and I wrote about this in the column. Clemson is living dangerously. Needed overtime to beat NC State. I think we could all say it's a fairly realistic scenario that Florida State would beat them in a couple weeks. Does it matter? If they then turn around and, and win out, they win the division, they win the ACC, and they're 12-1 and with a win over Auburn out of conference, they're going to the playoff. Yeah, I would say you're probably right. Now, the one that I don't think has a mulligan is Washington. Let me rephrase that. It doesn't have a guaranteed mulligan. It's certainly possible 12-1 and Pac-12 champion Washington gets in, but I think they'd have more to sweat. Keep in mind, if they lose the Apple Cup, they may not even get to the conference title game because Washington State hasn't lost yet the conference which is awesome by the way i am loving the thought of a winner takes all apple cup would you go up there for that game i would sure as heck try have you ever been to pullman i've never been to pullman i've never been to an apple cup never been to pullman yeah now the issue is it's the friday after thanksgiving not saturday you could take your wife and daughter up there for that thanksgiving in spokane let's do it i think you ought to do it are you gonna be there no but i think you ought to go our crew i think will be at uh Civil War, which isn't going to be so good. Oof. You sure you can't lobby for the Apple Cup? No, I don't think my lobbying powers are that good. All right. You just brought up an interesting scenario there. Washington State runs the table and has a chance to... Which isn't out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. And by the way, to go from losing to FCS to beating Oregon, Stanford, and UCLA all in a row is a nice little turnaround by your guy, Mike Leach. Now they go to play at ASU, who... Got run off the field by the mighty Colorado Buffs the other night at Oregon State. I mean, that is back-to-back road games. That's not a gimme. 
but certainly I think they're better than those teams. Then home against a reeling Arizona team, home against a Cal team that plays no defense. Well, here's the toughie right before Washington at Colorado. Yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't think they're going to be worried about the weather for sure. But they could lose once if Washington loses once. Look, the hypothetical on this, though, is they, if Washington State actually can afford a loss because they would each have one loss and they would have head-to-head over Washington. That's true. So they don't need to run the table. They can afford a loss. Washington, it's interesting. When you get to midseason, you kind of reassess things now that you know these teams better. I think beating Stanford 44-6 to still means something, but we certainly know that Stanford is very limited offensively. 11-1 and Washington doesn't play in the Pac-12 title game, which I know we need other things to play out, but they have no shot then to make it? I mean, I wouldn't say no shot, but I think if Washington is 11-1, and they are Baylor of two years ago. For all the crap Baylor took for their non-conference schedule, Washington played Rutgers, Idaho, and Portland State. And then I don't know who you're saying the loss is going to come to. Oh, I would say it would come to Washington State because that's how they would not get to play in the conference title game. They probably end with one win over a top 25 team, possibly two. I'm looking at Utah, who's currently ranked. Yeah, if they beat USC, USC wouldn't be in the top. You know, I guess USC could be eight and four and maybe sneak in. But Stanford could rally and get back in there. And then that counts as a ranked win. That's why I'm saying I don't even know if a 12 and one Pac-12 champion Washington is a gimme for this. I think that if that were the scenario, and Louisville's 11-1 and but not a champ, Ohio State or Michigan's 11-1 and not a champ, that's a decision. That's a tough one. That would be a great test case about just how much does the committee value conference championships because knowing the feedback I get about this, I think the public would be very much against them taking an 11 and 1 team that didn't win its conference over a 12 and 1 Pac 12 champ even if that team didn't play the greatest schedule. Okay. I'm not disagreeing with you on that. One other thing I wanted to get to from the weekend and that would be the weekly soap opera that is Notre Dame football. This week it was a 17-10 loss to a Stanford team playing without Christian McCaffrey. It was one of the worst endgame sequences you'll ever see in terms of uh, Deshaun Kaiser getting t- sacked or tackled twice in balance with no timeouts left, giving them no chance to win the game. And then afterward, Brian Kelly apparently gets into a little exchange with a Stanford strength coach. Jimmy Clausen's criticizing him on Twitter. Has your opinion about this changed at all? We've talked about it already and said that we think he's fine, that he's done so much that they're not going to fire him off one bad year. But this is getting really bad. Yeah, I don't think they would, they could fire him after one terrible year. You remember, he did a really good job last year with all the injuries, and they still you know won 10 games. He led them to a national title game. I mean, he's certainly the by far the best coach they've had in there since Lou Holtz. I don't disagree, but I've been under the assumption he would at least get to about 5-7. and seven. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's even that. I think you can give him a pass on whether it's 4-8 and eight or 5-7. and seven, It's a dud of a year. I think the issue that probably is frustrating a lot of Notre Dame supporters is the podium stuff. It's the optics of it. It's the podium stuff where it feels like, you know, whether he actually has done this directly or not, but it, you know, there's a lot of, of uh, belief that he seems to be blaming the players or blaming other people. He also, you know, the, 
the visuals of Brian Kelly looking like he's just raging on the sideline from time to time, which we saw that years ago, I think when they played, I want to say it was USF. So some of that I feel like, you know, Notre Dame probably feels is unbecoming to them or what they want to be about. I mean, we saw Jim Mora from UCLA have quite a meltdown on his punter this past weekend. And that's the kind of stuff where I think if it happened 10 years ago, it doesn't have the traction because there aren't a gif of it on Twitter where everybody passes it around. It's like, look at this, look at this raging lunatic kind of thing. And those are the things that I think, again, I still think he's going to be there next year. I, I don't see how they fire him and go, yeah, we're going to get a guy who's, who will do a better job in here. I mean, I don't disagree about appreciating what he has done there. And I mean, part of this is the disconnect between what Notre Dame fans think their program should be in reality right now. They think they should be what doing what Ohio State's doing, what Alabama's doing. It's just not realistic. But at the same time, I want to play through the schedule here with you. They have a bye week. Then they're playing a pretty good Miami team. Then they're playing in Jacksonville against a pretty good Navy team. Army in San Antonio, that should be a win. Then Virginia Tech and at USC. Three and nine is not out of the realm of possibility. It's not. I think they're four and 18. All right. So I want you to tell me they've just lost to USC to finish three and nine. Jack Swarbrick is standing in the back of the room at the press conference, and the reporters go up to him and say, you know, what's the situation with his job security? You're Jack Swarbrick. Tell me what he says to appease the public after the three and nine debacle. You know, I think he says we still believe in Brian Kelly. He's the same coach that led us to a national title game. He's the same coach who led us to 10 wins. I mean, I, I don't think Jack Swarbrick's going to sit there and go back and go, okay, well, you know, we had all these injuries last year. So that's why, you know, it was even more impressive why he's been able to do that. Uh, in the back of Jack Swarbrick's mind, I think he has to also know that, uh, it's not like there's surefire things. I mean, Brian Kelly, he's averaging 10 wins over the last four years. That's pretty good when you play a pretty challenging schedule. And it's not like, you know, they've had some issues where academically, it's not like they get a kid who gets in trouble and they can kind of hide it. Those kids usually get booted out of the program. I think the standard there is higher. And I think 10 wins a year in the previous four years it's tough to, for me to say, okay, one bad year and we're changing it. I mean, who do you think they would get who would do a better job at Notre Dame than Brian Kelly? There's nobody that comes to mind who I would say would definitely do a better job than Brian Kelly. There's who do you nobody. think could do as good a job as Brian Kelly? That they could realistically hire? Yeah. Notre Dame is a very different job. I'm not saying Jimbo Fisher would leave for it, but you're not hiring Jimbo Fisher at, in South Bend. Well, that's what I'm saying. When you think about you know the best coaches in the country – I don't think that they would leave for a Notre Dame job. And Tom Herman's probably going to have a better option. So are we talking about, I don't know, P.J. Fleck or somebody like that? Look, I like him, but he's at Western Michigan. Do you think he's ready to jump in to be in the middle of Notre Dame? I do not. I mean, maybe you get somebody from the NFL. I would. What you're saying right now is making me realize why they should not run him off. What do you mean maybe you get somebody from the NFL? All of a sudden now we're going to take Mike Tomlin out of the Steelers and he's going to jump into this? That's where they found Charlie Weiss. Oh, yeah, and that worked great. And by the way, Charlie Weiss was technically a Notre Dame guy. I'm sure there, you know, I just don't look around and see somebody who's going to be there and say, yeah, I'm going to get in the middle of this and be able to represent Notre Dame and do all the things you have to do to be the head coach at Notre Dame. I agree. But I do think that the state of college football that we're in is everybody demands everybody's head. And let's say he's four and eight and they keep him. He will be on definitively on the hot seat next year. It'll be one of those things where he needs to have a pretty quick recovery. Remember, Charlie Weiss had a 3-9 and season after two 
BCS Bowls. It was a debacle. And the difference between that 3-9 season and this one is they were getting blown out every week. And he still got two more seasons after that. But it always felt like it was inevitable that he was going to lose his job. Charlie Weiss wasn't one-tenth the coach that Brian Kelly is, though. Are you Brian Kelly's agent here? What's going on? No, but I'm being realistic here. Are all of a sudden now you think Charlie Weiss was like Newt Rockney? What if Mark D'Antonio says, because he's having a pretty rough year there. What if he says, okay, I've done everything I can do here. Harbaugh's across town now, Urban Meyer. I'm ready to go somewhere else, and Notre Dame is a possibility. Okay, but I mean, the spotlight's a lot bigger in South Bend than it's going to be in East Lansing. Does he really want that? I don't know. He's also dealing with his own 4-8 and eight season, possibly, the way things are going right now. I mean, now. I think he's a terrific coach. I mean, that's not a bad name to throw out. I'm just surprised you're all of a sudden you're big on the Charlie Weiss bandwagon. I'm not big on the Charlie Weiss bandwagon. But let's say somehow this, Pat this is why... gets his dream job and gets the Chicago Bears. You okay with Charlie coming into Evanston? What are you talking about? <laughs> this is basically what I've been trying to tell people for... 15 years you know you want to run off brian kelly do you want to go back to forget weiss do you want to go back to willingham do you want to go back to bob davy there's been a run of coaches there who couldn't pull off what that's my point yeah that's my point and jack sorbrick knows that and that's why i do believe he'll be faithful to him what brian kelly could really use honestly is just you know teams improve especially after bye weeks look at look at northwestern going from not being able to get in the end zone against Illinois State to now this offensive juggernaut in the Big Ten. You know, teams can get better, and uh, they've got this bye week coming up. Maybe they come back out, and suddenly they're good enough to beat Miami. You know, you never know how teams are going to change over the end of the season. I mean, I, it's not like Miami is is a juggernaut at this point. They're not even a top 25 team. Like I said, they're not getting blown out every week. Stanford comes down to the last second. NC State comes down to the last second. Duke comes down to the last second. So... They're not that far off. I think the disheartening thing about the Stanford game for them is for all the problems they've had on defense, now it was their offense that couldn't score more than 10 points. True. We talked a lot about Notre Dame for being such a middling team. Yeah, we just devoted a whole big chunk of the podcast to a 2-5 and five team. Why don't we talk about West Virginia real quick? I thought that was a statement win for the Mountaineers to go, not, not necessarily the win, but the dominance on defense against a Texas Tech team that had scored 50 points or more in nine straight home games. Yeah, I actually wrote a little about their defense. I don't know if people realize how many good players they lost off that defense. Pretty much the entire secondary either went to the NFL and the one guy who didn't, and he was the leader of the defense, Drayvon Henry, he ended up tearing his ACLs out for the season. So they pretty much had to completely overhaul the defense and to shut down. You can say whatever you want. Texas Tech is you know really bad on defense. Texas Tech with Pat Mahomes is very tough on offense, especially at home. And to limit them to just 17 points and to get after them as aggressive as they are, I mean, give me the percent chance you you put on it that West Virginia, which, by the way, gets Baylor and Morgantown and gets almost everybody else who's tough in the second half of the season in Morgantown. Give me the percent chance that West Virginia gets to the playoff this year. I thought you were going to say, what percentage chance do I give them to win the Big 12? At this point, while I still think Oklahoma is the team to beat, you know, I'd be willing to give West Virginia maybe a 40% chance to win the Big 12. But to make the playoff, honestly... They need help from outside the Big 12. Yeah, I think the Big 12 champ has to go undefeated this year. That's fine. I mean, they, they would have to go 12-0. and And by the way, you know, they played Mizzou, who's a bad SEC team this year. Baylor didn't play anybody in the non-conference. Yeah, no, West Virginia would have a better shot than Baylor of making it as a one-loss uh, Big 12 champ. 
you know, we talked about with Washington, the lack of top 25 wins that are possible in the conference. I think West Virginia could get two, Baylor and Oklahoma, and but that's it. Nobody else in that conference is going to be a ranked team at the end of the season. I agree. I agree. As always, if you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Tell 10 of your friends while you're at it. And for later in the week, you're going to want to send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.